Our scripture reading this evening is from Romans 1, 18 to 32. It's found on the third page of your bulletin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, man and birds, and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, would you join me as we pray? Lord, you know uh, it is hard for us to hear a reading like that uh, for many reasons. Uh, And yet you are one who wounds to heal. You are one who speaks the truth in love. You are one who offends to save. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear. And we thank you for your faithfulness to sinful people. 
In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are embarking on an in-depth study of the power of the gospel. Power of the gospel. And by gospel, it's the basic definition we're talking about here is good news that is declared. Declaration of good news. And in the case of the Christian faith, the good news that God has entered our broken world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to deliver us from darkness unto light. And that means not only my individual darkness, my individual vices and sins and, you know, addictions and wounds, but also the evil and injustice that the world experiences and bears every day that plagues the world. This is the purpose of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he might come bring people from darkness to light. This is why he came, ultimately and finally, to do away with those things that break our hearts and break the world. And yet, the condition of that good news depends upon this, that we can acknowledge there's darkness in us. That we can acknowledge it's not just in the world, but there's actually darkness in us as well. Uh, that is, you got to come through the bad news to get to the good news. And that's sometimes the case in life in general, but with the gospel, you got to come through the bad news to get to the good news. you got to be willing to at least hear it. You know, let's say that you're walking out on the street and you come upon a group of people celebrating. They're celebrating uh, the end of a war, but you have no idea that the war was going on, and you have no idea who the people group involved or the land. Now, you might be glad for them, but it doesn't touch you personally. It isn't something that touches you and delivers you personally. For you and I to really understand the good news, the bad news, the deliverance, the fix we were in has to start with us, or we'll never get there. Or, or as we said last week, and I prayed, this can be an offensive thing. The Christian gospel offends before it heals. It just does. It insults us before it brings us to glory, exalts us. It insults us before it exalts us. This is what the Christian gospel does. And it's not easy. It would be like a friend of yours calling you up at 5 in the morning, and they call you up and say, listen, I'm so sorry to wake you up at 5 in the morning, but I knew you would want to know. You would especially want to know. They have finally come up with a cure for people with horrible breath. You know, or they came up with a pill for people that are insufferably boring. And I knew you would want to know. I mean, on one hand, you'd be like, okay, right? I, um, that's good news, but I'm a little offended that I need that good news. Well, the gospel works a little bit like that. You know, in fact, you might have felt that way with the reading that you heard. Boy, you know, first of all, it's calling us, you know, futile and foolish. Seems to be judgmental on gay people, on folks from other religions. If you're visiting here, you might think, well, this is the very reason I don't want to become a Christian. This is the very reason I don't like the Bible, because it says stuff like that. But I want to ask you to pause, one, because you're going to go through the bad news to get to the good news, but number two, this room is filled and has been over the last 10 years 
with people that went to the finest schools in the country but realized they were foolish, who people that self-identify as gay but have come to see that is not their primary identity, for people that were part of other religions but now are followers of Christ. This is the story of us in this room and what God has done. And so, we have to start understanding sin if we're going to understand any of this, the good news. And it's not only just for us personally, I think this passage really helps us understand the world and what we see. I mean, anybody that looks out on the pain of the world struggles for an explanation, desires an explanation. How do we make sense of this? And even if you reject this one, you have to have some explanation for the evil that confronts the world day in and day out. Why is it happening? And it runs across every cross-section of people, right? Doesn't matter how educated you are. Doesn't matter what geography you're from. Doesn't matter if you lived 2,000 years ago or you live now. It doesn't matter if you're black, you're white, you're rich or poor. This describes all of us. Maybe not everything about all of us. But I hope as you heard that list, you were like, yeah, you know, that touches on me a little bit. I tend to gossip. I'm covetous. you got to have some explanation for that. And I think what Paul gives us here is really a wonderful, helpful explanation of it. It's one that really helps some of the brightest minds, from Augustine to Jonathan Edwards, or the least educated mind, a way to understand and so for the next three weeks, we're going to be just looking at understanding sin. Understanding this thing that plagues us and troubles us in the world. And this week, I want to focus on idolatry. I'll define that a little bit later, idolatry. But the cause and the consequence. Okay? The cause and the consequence. So let's jump on in. First of all, uh, the passage begins by saying God's wrath is being revealed. God's wrath is simply this, God's righteous anger. Now, we know just from fellow human beings ourselves, there can be unrighteous anger, you know, I wrongly get mad at somebody, or there can be righteous anger. When we hear about child soldiers or child prostitutes, when many people's pensions are lost for profit, where justice is doled out for those that are of a particular race or economic level, when you hear your niece or nephew got bullied, there's righteous anger. You experience righteous anger. And God experiences righteous anger every day. Because there's stuff happening every day that He has a right to be angry about. If we have that feeling, why would God not? Yet His anger is never selfish or arbitrary because His anger submits to His justice. You know, God cannot be unrighteously anger, angry because He's perfectly just. And we're told why then... Is he angry? Ungodlessness and unrighteousness. Now, in other translations, uh, we get the words godlessness and wickedness. And they imply two directions. One is a vertical sin. The other is a horizontal sin. Godlessness is talking about the sin we have against God, horizontal, the sins against men. And this is really, you know, uh, the opposite of the two great commandments, love God with all you got and love your neighbor with all you got. The two are linked together. You can't sin against your neighbor unless you first sin against God. And when you sin against your neighbor, you've also sinned against God. They're bound together. 
So let's look at the vertical first. The vertical suppression here, uh, expression rather, we're given is that men suppress the truth. Now this is universal men and women. Some of you women might say, yeah, amen to that. Men suppress the truth. But this involves all of us, okay? Men suppress the truth of who God is. Now all of us are familiar with the, the uh, story of Cinderella. Right, and what happens in the story of Cinderella? In that fairy tale, um, the evil stepmother and the stepsisters suppress who Cinderella is. They won't let the world know who she is. They won't let her go outside of the house. They won't let her go to the ball. When the prince comes looking who fits the shoe, they don't want him to find out. They're suppressing the truth of who she is. Well, the writer's saying a similar thing, that sin seeks to suppress who God is. In the most basic sense, it suppresses who he is as a creator. Paul starts at the very most basic level. The fact that God made this, the, the intricacy and in the order that we see, isn't a bazillion to one chance. But God was actively the creator behind it. And yet sin will cause even that basic truth to be blinded from people. Maybe it comes in the form of the fact that they just say, well, God doesn't exist at all. Or maybe it's you know, relegating God to uh, the God of deism, where God is creator emeritus. He got things started, but he doesn't actively care, provide, and sustain. So it's taking away God's identity as caretaker and lover and provider for humanity. Maybe that's it. But this sin leads us to deny the most obvious thing, the most obvious fact. For, and Paul says we have no excuse. You know, I've said before I grew up in an agnostic home. And, and agnostics typically say, the reason I don't believe in God is because there's not enough evidence. When agnostics get to heaven, God will say, no, there was lots of evidence. Every day I gave you evidence. It was shining from the sky. You heard it from the birds of the air. You saw it in the face of your neighbor. But there's also a horizontal sin that's mentioned here. Um, and he lists sins of covetedness, gossip, envy, murder, heartless, ruthless. We'll touch on that again. And while that's a difficult list, as I said before, we cannot deny that it describes humanity. So, you know, it's hard to hear this stuff, but can we sit here and go, those are false accusations across humanity? They're not. True accusations. Now, the theological term that represents this idea is called total or radical depravity. I prefer the, the second one because I think it's a better descriptor. And it's not that man is as bad as he could be all the time, but that rather sin touches every part of us. The way we think, the way we feel, the way we act. That's what it's going after when it says that. And the cause of it, Paul identifies, is so small. You know, one of the smallest, deadliest creatures on the earth is the poison dart frog. The poison dart frog. Now, it's this beautiful blue frog. But if you touch its back, this little slime at its back, it has enough poison to kill like 10 or 11 people. Now, you might wonder, Glenn, how do you know that? Well, I looked it up on the Internet. So what? Why? I don't, I don't want to be killed by that frog. You know, I don't want to be killed by a small, deadly animal. I want to be aware of the things that might kill me. Well, Paul says something so small behind all this stuff, and you see it represented here. 
For all they knew, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Did you catch it? Thanklessness. Thanklessness was the reason that all this happened, humanity. Now, typically, we put thanklessness in the category of manners. Be polite, say you're thankful. You know, we, we instruct the kids we love to do this. But it's a much deeper thing, isn't it? I think I've uh, mentioned this illustration before, but let me put it before you. Imagine uh, one of your childhood friends says, um, I would like you to come and see me receive an award. They win some award, and their whole family's going to be there. And you grew up, and you were in this house, and you know this family. They're a great family. The parents were loving. They provided things. They were affirming, carried this person through their life, through thick and thin. They're there in the front row, the parents, the whole family there. And your friend gets the award, and he gives a thank you speech. And as he's giving the thank you speech, he goes through a long list. I want to thank my third grade teacher. I want to thank the coach that coached me T-ball. I want to thank uh, the person that ran the drive through McDonald's because he gave me extra French fries. I want to, they just go through the list of all these different people to thank, and they get to the end and they never thank the parents. And afterward, you know, you're a little upset and say, did you realize, maybe you were nervous, that you didn't thank your parents? And the person goes, no, I knew it. I, I just didn't want to. They didn't deserve to be. You would be upset, righteously upset, righteously angered because you refused to give to the person that basically gave you everything. Well, this is what God experiences on a daily basis. I mean, it may come in the form of the fact that we just forget to say thanks, God, for the fact I woke up this morning and I breathe. But when we take pride for our accomplishments, when we believe our networks and our talents and all those things we just sort of earned? I mean, each one of us lives day in and day out, really refusing to give thanks for God, and sometimes we actively want that glory ourselves. We want people to think that we kind of made ourselves. In fact, you know, America loves the idea of the self-made person. That's part of our narrative, right? Or we transfer glory to other people. We'll go to that in a moment, idolatry. But I want to stop for a moment and give you a real practical application how this works out. Let's imagine the sin of adultery. Now, I pick that because there are some sins that maybe, you know, if you're not within the church and a Christian, you might go, I don't think that's a sin. But most people across the board would say it is not right for someone to cheat on their spouse. Well, think about it this way. How does it relate to thanklessness? Over time, one or both spouses become thankless for one another. They stop appreciating one another. And then one or both spouse takes that glory that their spouse should have had and they put it on another spouse and think, this spouse will do the trick for me. And so what precedes the actual break of the covenant is lack of thanksgiving and then transferring glory to something else. That's exactly what Paul is describing here. That's just a practical example of how these things work out. And, the, and you could go back to Genesis chapter 3 and basically find that pattern all throughout. It may be a helpful thing for you to look at your own life with. How does that work? But let's move to the second point. Not just the cause, but the consequence. And I mentioned idolatry. Uh, we read, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. If you light an incense, you know, is it an incense or incense? Just incense. If you light incense, okay, you can tell I don't light incense a lot. But uh, I like the smell of it. I just don't do it much. So anyway, if you light incense and the smoke starts to go up and you decide, uh, I'm going to put a newspaper over it, the smoke doesn't go away. It just goes this way. It goes horizontally. Well, the same thing as our incense, our praise, our prayers to God, right? When we fail to give praise to God, that doesn't go away, that impulse to give thanks and praise. Because we were made to give thanks and praise. Rather, what happens is it goes on to other people. It goes out horizontally, what the Bible would call idolatry. The praise and worth that we would give to God doesn't just evaporate, it goes on to other things. And we begin to idolize those. The value that God deserves through our worship gets displaced onto other people. Over-exaggerated value. Now, as we think about idolatry, our minds immediately go to ancient people that had wooden statues and silver statues. And it's true in the Mediterranean, uh, you know, in the Near Eastern world, pagan religions would have statues of beasts or combinations of humans with beasts together. And many times modern people just chalk that up to their, oh, they were just primitive. Yeah, they're just those primitive people. It's really kind of foolish and arrogant that we say that. They, they, they weren't so stupid as to going, look at this statue. I lo- this statue is God. And I love this. Come on, give them a little credit. Why did they turn to the idols? They wanted the same things that you and I want. Maybe it was fertility. Maybe it was fruitfulness and a harvest. To say that they wanted prosperity. They wanted security. They wanted status. They thought, my idols will give that to me. Modern-day idols, we go for the same thing, right? For us, maybe it's our retirement account that gives us security. Maybe it's the gun that we have at home. For status, maybe it's our degree from a high-priced institution. Maybe it's the car we drive. Maybe it's the clothes we wear. You and I idolize things and get crazy about things because of what they represent. We're no different than the ancients. And just like underneath the refusal to acknowledge God, there was thanklessness, underneath idolatry is broken desire. That's what's underneath idolatry. Paul mentions this when he says the word lust. And by lust, he means selfish desire, uh, over-desire. Now, desire in and of itself is not the problem. Desire is like a river. A river can be a wonderful thing, but if it gets out of its banks, it gets to be a very dangerous thing, a destructive thing. Desire is the same way. So the misdirection of our desire is sin. Now, we might over-desire something, too much of a good thing, or we might have distorted desires. We make something into what it's really not, some sort of, maybe your kid. Is it great for you to desire your kid's success? Yeah, but when it becomes an idol where you're driving them and driving you, well, it's a good thing gone wrong. That's an example of idolatry. But for modern Americans, I think one of the areas that we don't see this is the way that our desires are broken. We tend to believe as modern people, and I think it's the West in general, but especially in America, that desire and passion, our desire and passion, is this pure, almost divine guide. 
If I can figure out what I'm passionate about, if I can figure out what I desire, then it will lead me to the truth, my destiny and what I really need. That's how we think. And self-expression is basically a constitutional right in our mind. I got this desire, and I ought to be able to express it. This is how we think in America. But we're often blind to the fact that our desires may not be a pure divine God. We reason in America, listen, if I'm happy, if I have this desire, and there's nothing obviously that seems bad about it, and it makes me happy, why would you ever say that I couldn't have it? That's unjust. Or, as people say, when it gets to the issue of same-sex, and we'll talk about this in a moment, well, if God created me with this desire, why shouldn't I act upon it? But there's little thought to the idea that maybe God didn't create all desires. We can recognize in one area of our life that our desires tend to get bent and broken, but when it comes to this one area, we think it's pure and unadulterated. And it's just inconsistent. We regularly say in this room, all of us are sexually broken, including your pastor. Every one of us is sexually broken. Our sexuality is not something that stands off to the side that is not affected by everything else. This is the insight that the Bible gives us here. And sometimes it's the worst thing in the world to get your desire. Oscar Wilde once said, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. Right? I mean, for the person that idolizes their career, the worst thing in the world that could happen is they get a promotion. For the person that idolizes marriage, the worst thing in the world may be that they get married because it becomes everything for them. And this letting go and getting what we want is really a judgment from God sometimes. A judicial handing over. This words of, and God gave them over, means that God just stopped holding back. It means he also said, go. I mean, sometimes, you know, you parent that way. Or you, if you guys have, you know, nieces and nephews, right, you're sitting there and they're just, and you find you let them get a little taste of the medicine, hoping it'll turn them around. God hopes it'll lead us. But another place desire infects us is that not only it, it, there's a consequence with our identity. And this is a part, again, I think, manifestation in modern days more than perhaps in that day. And that is this. Our desires consume our identity. I become my desire. And you see this in the debate about sexuality completely. You know, instead of this idea that sex is something that I might do, it becomes who I am. And so if you say that I shouldn't engage in this sort of form or sex or this or that, you are saying that I don't exist. You're not letting me be who I am. Do you see what happens there? It's idolatry. Our desire has defined us. You know, I am not what I do. That's part of what I am, but who I am, the Bible would say, is made by God, created by God. Another where we're seeing this is actually in the discussion about gender. Some of you may have saw the story this week, um, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, that the, um, at Vanderbilt University they're engaging in what's called pronoun etiquette encouraging their faculty and administration that when they introduce themselves to say, and I'll put my name in there, uh, hi, my name is Glenn, and the pronouns I use are he, his, and him. What would you like to be called? It's one thing to be sensitive, right? It's another thing to be autonomous. Essentially, it's leading us down a path that says, I, whatever my desire is, is what my identity is. 
And the Bible would say that's the impact of sin in our lives. It's got things flipped. We have a creator. St. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, God. You know, I find myself when my desire meets you. Or John Piper had this clever little phrase, he wanted to be a Christian hedonist. You know, a hedonist is someone that just goes after their desires. He, he would say, our desires have been given by God. So yeah, be a hedonist, be a Christian hedonist. Desire and go. And when Christian identity is chiefly in Christ, he then begins to shape us. But Paul then offers an illustration, and I've already been referring to it, where he offers up same-sex romance, same-sex relationships, romantic relationships. Now, those of you that are unfamiliar with the Bible, um, you know, here he's focusing on that, but you could go many places in the Bible where it's across the board he, uh, where the Bible addresses sexuality, whether it's um, opposite-sex relationships, single people in sex, even getting into things like abuse, sexual abuse, incest, same-sex relationships. So here the focus is on same-sex, but there are other places where the Bible speaks comprehensively to the idea. And basically what we're being told here is that the summary is this. When you and I engage in sex outside of a covenant between one man and one woman, it's a sinful misdirection of what God intended. Now that's the big controversial point today, right? That's the issue that maybe you struggle with, even having me said that, other people struggle with, but just give me a moment here. First, let me tell you, this is not a new issue. You know, our culture sometimes likes to make it a new issue. We're, we've evolved this way, we're so smart, now we're asking these questions. It's not a new issue, obviously, because an ancient writer's writing about it. You know, pa Paul traveled the world extensively. He was a brilliant guy with the equivalent of a couple PhDs by the time he was 22. He was a very cultured guy. He was not oblivious to same-sex relationships that were committed. I say that because one of the ways that uh, some scholars are trying to harmonize the Bible with the culture is to say, well, the Bible hadn't really thought about this question. That's not true. Or saying the Bible, the passage is not talking about monogamous same-sex relationships or the passage is talking about denying your actual you know, authentic sexual nature. All those things, just to be humbly honest, they, they are not doing justice to the text, the context, or what the Bible says across the board. This is what the Scripture gives us across the board in the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament. But here Paul is focusing on a particular vantage point, nature. He's talked about God as creator. He's talked about God as creator and us being created by him, and he says this. The reason why homosexuality is contra nature, that when God made men and women with physical bodies, he made them naturally interactive sexually. When he made their physical bodies, he made them naturally in a way where they could sexually interact. He also made children the fruit of that interaction, and you know, children are something that's rarely discussed with sex but it was always a part of sex. Sex was never just pure pleasure. Pleasure is a part of it, but it had a point to it. That was community, children. But also, the man and woman represent diversity. They have both genders. So all these things are in God's mind as he's talking about sexuality within the covenant of marriage. Now, the objection, of course, would be, well, that, you know, um, I hear you on that, but I think it's repressive. I think it's unjust. And more so people have that view. But I, I would ask anybody that has that opinion, 
to say, just take stock of where we are. Take a stock of where we are historically. You and I live right now in one of the most hyper-sexualized cultures in centuries. This is true. I, that's not an argument from a Christian. I was reading something in the Harvard Crimson, which is Harvard's newspaper, where they were basically critiquing advertisements that are used that sexualize women. I mean, you know, you don't need to have a religious person tell you this. You, you just watch whether they're selling motor oil or airline tickets or hamburgers. And even friendships, right? There's no longer friendships just anymore. It's friends with benefits. Everything has been sexualized, even our children, with child pornography. So you have to take stock of this fact that I am living already conditioned in a very sexualized culture. So could it be, as Romans says, that my mind is darkened, that my heart is darkened, that today what I'm seeing might not be the normative of what's always been or intended. And so, the Lord would then say to us, you and I were not meant to be ruled by our desires or defined by our desires, but rather we were to be ruled by His Son and our identity to be defined by being made in God's image. This is what the gospel tells us. This is the good news. But it's not only impacting the area of sex. It also impacts the area of everyday life. You see this list here. Covetous, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, haters of God, insolent, haughty, you know, boastful. It's basically all these things that we see in the world. But here's the connection I want you to see. This is, I think, the brilliant connection that this passage is giving us here. These are the things we do when we can't get our idols. These are the things we do when we can't get our idols. When I can't get that relationship, that job, that person, that desire, I turn to something. Maybe it's gossip. Some people turn to murder. Some people turn to theft. But do you see the, how Paul is bringing this out? Let me just say it as a summary here. He starts by going, okay, here's why God is righteously angry, and here's the problem we get into. Sin leads us to suppress the knowledge of God. That takes the form of we don't give God thanks, and we don't give Him praise, and that thanks and praise just doesn't evaporate. It goes on to other things and other people whom we then idolize. It could be a job, it could be a person, it could be any other thing like that. It could be our, our racial makeup, whatever it is. We begin to idolize those things, and we think, I have to have those things for an identity. I have to have those things to survive, and if I don't, I will do this. That's the analysis this is giving us. And I will tell you, I, lots of people have found it very helpful. Because it's true. It's true in our heart of hearts, whether it's into our sexuality or whether it's into our everyday life. But these next three weeks are going to be a little bit tough, right? Because we're, the deep dive takes us deep. <laughs> before we come up for air and all these wonderful doctrines of like God's adoption and His forgiving grace and that we're justified and the fact that God loves us and who can be against, all that stuff. But I, I do want to leave us with a word of encouragement because this section flows on the one we looked at last week that says 
that the power of the gospel, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power for salvation. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is talking to a group of people much like the book of Romans. Not theoretically, but these people are much like the book of Romans in Corinthians. And this is what he says to them. You know, some of you were greedy. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were this. Some of you were that. Some of you were this. But that's what you were. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were restored to your identity of who you were meant to be. That's who you are, a new creation in Christ. That's who you are if your faith is in Christ. That's who you will be if you turn to Christ. This is where the power of the gospel starts for you and I. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your grace to understand these things. Light to our minds and hearts that we might be among those number washed, justified, and sanctified. In Christ's name, amen.